the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elma. Hello and welcome. My name is Elna Schutz and this is the show where we talk all things science. If you've been listening the last few weeks, you'll know that we are featuring some stories from Cape Town. Since Cape Town has amazing scientific research, we thought we'd spread the science inside a little bit further afield. And if you talk to anybody about science in the mother city, what you're going to hear is TB. Everybody mentions tuberculosis and there's a good reason for that because the city has more cases of tuberculosis than that of several big countries in the world combined. It's a place not just of high incidence of the disease but a hub of research about it. So today on the show we are taking some time to look at that because it's not just Cape Town. South Africa has the dubious honor of being a mainstay on the World Health Organization's list of 30 high TB burden countries year after year after year. And the latest stats say we have about 322,000 incidences of TB and about a mortality rate of 22,000, which is is incredibly high but globally TB is still one of the top 10 causes of death in the world can you believe that but thankfully given science and governments working together there are lots of strategies in place and there are some improvements with incidences dropping by about two percent per year globally and of course there are um, there are treatments TB is is curable, which is the one great thing. But just some quick facts about the disease in case you need a bit of a refresher. Tuberculosis is caused by a bacteria that is spread through the air, most commonly when someone coughs. And even if you just inhale a few of those germs, you may get the disease. And those symptoms may seem mild for a few months, but they can be life-threatening, especially if your immune system is already compromised, such as by HIV, malnutrition, or diabetes. Now, something that I personally did not know is that that, which I just mentioned, that's active TB. But an estimated quarter So one in four people in the world and the vast majority of South Africans have TB latently in their system. So it's not active. You're not showing symptoms. You don't, you you may never actually have the disease, but you do have bacteria in your system. So it is an issue that affects more of us in some way or another. And it's very important to talk about, which is exactly what we're doing on the show today to feature some scientists locally who are working hard on this issue and trying trying to really make sure that that number drops and drops and drops. First up on the show, the researchers that are testing the air someone with TB breathes out can now see exactly how much TB is in that air and they can hopefully lower transmissions. In unscience, we talk about an emotion called schadenfreude. If you've ever giggled when something's happened to somebody you don't like, that much this one is for you. And then later in the show, tuberculosis doesn't happen in a vacuum. It interacts with other illnesses and diseases, including, very importantly, HIV. All of that is coming up on the show. But as always, we kick it off with some science news in just a minute. So if you want to talk to us, tell us what you think about TB, about these scientific breakthroughs that we're talking about on the show today, you can find us on social media. As always, you already know this, right? We're VowFM on Twitter and on Facebook. Just make sure you use that hashtag, ScienceInside. And then the podcast, if you missed anything on the show today, is the Science Inside on iTunes as well as on our website, vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. Of course, if you want to send us a quick, just a young voice note, you can do so on our WhatsApp line, 084-078-4912. We can take a quick break and then we'll get into our science news. 
Today, I'm sharing the science news with our producer, Bridget LePere. Bridget, how are you doing? What do you have for us? I'm great, thanks. Well, this week we are talking about the legalities and ethical implications of lost eggs and embryos. Okay, I don't know exactly how you would lose an egg or an embryo. That sounds very worrying. Um, yes, at fert- uh, f- uh, fertility clinics, actually. Oh, yeah. okay. I mean, that's something you should be taking very careful you know, heed of. Yes, of course. So earlier this year, a nitrogen storage tank at a university hospital's facility center in Cleveland failed, in which 950 patients lost more than 4,000 of frozen eggs and embryos. Now, three medical and legal scholars have been discussing the implications of one couple's wrongful death suit where they are seeking uh, compensation for their loss. Okay, so it's not losing it in terms of somebody misplaced it and doesn't know where it went. Uh, Something went wrong with the facility. But this is something so precious, not just in monetary value. Sure. But, of course, often you you freeze or keep... um, eggs because you don't think you will be able to have healthy eggs later that's that's one of the main medical main medical reasons as i understand it so i can imagine why this couple would be very sad and angry and is suing because um because it is it is an embryo that is considered human by a lot of a lot of people yeah and they were hoping for that embryo to be their child someday mm-hmm. so a professor at uh, medical um, at uh, medical science at brown university's warren Alpert Medical School, Dr. Ellie Adashi and co-authors Glenn Cohen and Professor of Law and Policy uh, and Bioethics at the University of San Diego and Dove Fox have written about the potential implications should the Ohio court hearing uh, case rule in favor of this couple. So their argument is that should the ruling be in the couple's favor, this could uh, lead to limits of abortion, stem cell research and in vitro fertilization. Okay, so it would have very, very far-reaching consequences. But what exactly happened at the facility so that I can understand that better? Because, of course, you would have a lot of regulations in place. Sure. And you you would expect that, but it doesn't seem to be the case at the moment. So, which is why they are discussing this. Um, So, Dr. Adashi says experts and professionals in the in the fertility field are evaluating the root cause of this incident and are working on implementing new recommendations and guidelines to prevent similar incidents from taking place in future. He says this should be a wake up call for those working in the field, and that these guidelines should outline who should be held responsible. Adding that should the the, the IVF uh, clinician be negligent, then it should also be considered what the charge should be and for how long he should be charged for. Okay, so I understand that. But what has has the state said up to this point? I mean, there's got to be some kind of precedent here. Yes. So um, a legal instance in Ohio had established that a fetus that is not viable is not a person under its wrongful death law but the complainants being the couple in this case base their grounds on the theory that life the life of a person actually begins at the moment of inception and that the charging for such an offense should be dealt with as such okay sure that's really interesting and and as i said can can have such big consequences for such a large amount of people. Yeah. And a ruling in this instance could also affect the rulings on abortion as well, according to the authors. And other strategies which have been tried in similar cases include breach of contract, medical mal- malpractice, negligent infliction of emotional distress and the loss of property, which in this case would be the embryos. Mm, and this topic brings up so many other questions, um, like what is if a person has started a procedure and doesn't want to carry on? How many complaints are they facing of all? 
Well, uh, 70 other patients affected by this incident are pursuing legal action and the legal system has not yet established appropriate venues for those seeking damage uh, compensation and currently there is no clarity in the courts as to how to deal with such cases because the guidelines and the rules are not as clear. Mm. And this happens so often. I say it on this show so often that science doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's so many things that have to happen around that scientific research, even if you have amazing breakthroughs, whether that's the law or business. There's a lot that has to catch up. And and sometimes, unfortunately, it happens when things go wrong. Yeah, and I guess maybe we've been looking too far ahead of producing babies from you know in the laboratory or something but not looking at you know the guidelines and who should be held responsible should such things happen Mm. yeah well elna i'm interested in your story what do you have for us this week so from embryos to the brain i have quite a nice breakthrough from a group called brain gate consortium And they work with various universities to create brain-computer interfaces, so-called BCI. And they have got it right, get, get this, for people who are paralyzed to use a tablet just by thinking about moving around the mouse and clicking things. Wow, that's super cool. (laughs) Right? So it's pretty amazing to me. And what they're doing is using a small sensor about as big as a pill that's implanted in the brain's motor cortex. That's the part of your brain that controls your body's voluntary movements. And their sensor picks up neural signals that are then decoded and taken to external devices, such as robotic arms, for instance, in other studies. But in this case, the neural signals from the implant then went to a Bluetooth interface that was working basically like a wireless mouse and was connected to a tablet. And these electronic tablets were right out of the packaging. So nothing expensive or tedious, no big adjustments, which is really great news for people who are disabled in some way and usually have to have really special and often expensive equipment. Also, there was no big getting used to the new technology because it's all the same apps and websites that patients would have used before they got paralyzed anyway. And then just to clarify, the, the participants in this particular study were paralyzed either because of a spinal cord injury or ALS, which is the progressive um, nerve disease, which you might have heard of before. Wow, this is really interesting. It brings to mind um, the... Uh the scientist that uh, had um, a brain um, um, where he had an injury and he couldn't use um, so he couldn't use his limb so he had to use assistance from oh you mean Stephen Hawking Stephen Hawking I'm not sure if he had ALS he might have actually but that's a good example with the amount of um, adjusted and assistive technologies that he had to use. Yes. So these kind of things are would be an amazing breakthrough. So um, what were the participants doing in this particular study on these tablets? So they were asked to perform various tasks like messaging people, using email, music streaming, YouTube. Um, and what the researchers found was that they were able to make about 22 point and click selections per minute and type up to 30 effective characters per minute which is slow for you and me but considering how they're doing this it's pretty impressive and um, the participants were also saying that it felt much more natural than any existing method wow so this is a and it's it's really interesting especially since you're basically doing this all in your head Yes, exactly. And one one of the cool stories that, that came from this that I thought was really beautiful, um, just to illustrate this, is that one of the participants was a musician and she used a digital piano app to play a little Beethoven, which is just so incredible considering that she couldn't... Um, she she wouldn't be able to play, play it again um, with her arms. And reading from reading these reports, I'm assuming that the people in the study may be able to speak but but the wonderful thing is that if this uh, works then it could be wonderful for people with severe neurological problems or what they call locked in syndrome which is when you're not able to communicate at all with the outside world except maybe with blinking 
Oh, this is really fascinating. So are you saying that these people will be able to actually interact with their loved ones? Yes, but also, as great as that is, with their healthcare workers. So if you think of somebody like someone with locked-in syndrome, they can't tell their health healthcare workers what kind of pain they have, what they need, and this could break that barrier, which could open up so much more about what we know about these kind of conditions. Amazing. We should use this on babies. Oh, my gosh. I, I don't know if babies would be able to watch YouTube and send messages, but it would be interesting to know. It would be interesting to know. That was our science news. Uh, stick with us on the science side. We're getting to more around tuberculosis after the break. This is the science side with Elna. Hello and welcome to The Science Inside. My name is Elna Schutz and today we are talking about something very serious. Tuberculosis affects so many people in the world. In fact, it is still one of the top 10 killers uh, or diseases you may die from in the world. South Africa again and again is very high on that list. So today we're bringing you some excellent science from the people on the continent and here right here in South Africa working on this very important subject and trying to make it better for everybody involved. We go now to a story by our producer Bridget Lepere on TB. Tuberculosis rates in Cape Town are said to be among the highest in the world. According to the World Health Organization, TB infections in Cape Town stood at 681, while in Gauteng they stood at 330 in 2015. These contradictory numbers show that even though Cape Town is well-resourced in combating the epidemic through rigorous research and treatment campaigns, but much is still unknown about TB. It still remains a major cause of death among individuals with HIV and AIDS in South Africa. And because of this, Professor Robin Wood, CEO of the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation and member of the Institute of Infectious Disease and Molecular Medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Cape Town, has developed a novel way of diagnosing and analyzing TB. Through UCT's flagship program, he and his team are investigating aerobiology, which is the study of airborne biological materials of tuberculosis transmission, and this is what makes their method ideal and much more effective in the monitoring and treatment of TB. This is for the first time that nobody's ever visualized the organisms coming out of a diseased person before. They've looked at it in sputum and they've grown it out of sputum, but nobody has seen the organisms that are actually floating and being transferred from one person to another. Previously, TB was thought to be a very difficult infection to treat, and because of this, it was believed to be a very rare event. But over the years, with new technological devices, scientists have realized that TB was just as common back then as it is now. And this is one of the many reasons why it has been such an arduous disease to deal with. Most of the work that was done on this was done uh, 60 years ago in the 1950s. And that people only breathed out infectious units, perhaps 400 cubic meters. So it was an incredibly rare event. So it was thought that we would never find the organisms. However, when we use modern techniques to look at uh, expired air from TB cases, we suddenly discovered that we could in fact identify each organism and look at what it looked like and identify it in the majority of TB cases, which made us then go on to say, well, can we find it in patients that are not TB cases? And it looks as though that is also the case. So we think that the reasons that it hadn't been studied before was because of these early findings that it was an incredibly rare event. And this is how the study was carried out. Robin explains. At the moment, this is a research tool that I've developed. And what I do is I take a, a known TB case and we get them to sit in a very small personalised clean room. 
meaning that all the air that goes into that room is is filtered so there's no particles. The individual wears a special suit so they don't create particles and then during the time they're in the clean room we collect everything they breathe out during that period and then we analyse that to look for TB bacteria. They looked at culturable organisms to monitor its progress and mechanisms. And because TB is a slow-progressing illness, which only yields detectable results after six weeks, it proved to be a challenge in providing the kind of results that they are seeking. That makes it very difficult to uh, be able to say anything about an individual, for instance, if they're a high transmitter or a low transmitter, if you have to wait six weeks for the result. So we then uh, developed um, newer technologies, particularly using... um, fluorescent dyes which can identify living bacteria and we put these onto microscope slides which have miniature wells in them and then we look at each well with a computerized um, microscope. What makes Robin's study even more fascinating is that he developed a method of analyzing TB cells in a way that allows him to trace and track its origins. TB DNA contains various epidemiological clues that give insight about the number of TB organisms in the patient and its characteristics. Part of the rationale and the interest in this is that, in fact, the majority of people in South Africa are infected with TB. So my estimate would be be about 77 to 80% of individuals have a positive immune test for exposure to TB. And yet only a very small number of them develop TB at any given time. Each TB organism is looked at individually, enabling the researcher to look at how the TB bacterium takes up the dye, which tells the scientists about the life of that TB cell and how it develops gradually outside the host. In this way, they are able to understand and treat it accordingly. We can look at each individual captured organism and we can see its growth potential and its ability to take up these um, dyes. They tend to be concentrated at the ends of each organism uh, because that's where it's growing and just before it splits it starts being taken up in the midsection. So we can now look at the characteristics of individual bacteria rather than having to look at the results of culture organisms which have taken six weeks to produce. So it's a new insight into looking and calculating the number of organisms that are coming out of people and uh, being able to see how the organism has adapted to its life outside of human beings. We're looking at each captured bacterium, very small, two microns in size. We're looking at each one of those and describing the characteristics of each one of those that comes out of a specific patient. These were some of the challenges that Robin faced during his study. We've been doing this for about the last three years. So initially, we were reliant on the conventional culture of organisms. But there were some technical difficulties with the sensitivity of that, in that when you collect organisms onto growing medium, you can't collect it for a long period of time because the growing medium dries up and the apparatus used to run at quite small sampling rates of uh, around about uh, just under 30 litres per minute. So we have been working on the technology and we now collect directly into liquid. We collect it at um, 300 litres per minute. So that allows us to sample more of the air and to get a larger volume of sampled air into a liquid and then we process the liquid as opposed to uh, reliant on the growth of the organisms which is what we initially did. Robin and his team took to the streets of Cape Town and he handed out geographical positioning devices to TB infected adolescents so he could evaluate the factors which may have contributed to the widespread of TB among individuals who had not even met. So the question that arose in my mind is how is this disease being spread to virtually the whole population by only a very small number of people? 
So when we started looking at transmission, which is presumed to come from the diseased people to the non-diseased people, we did some experiments. We gave geographical positioning devices to TB patients, and we looked specifically at young adolescents who have the highest rates of infection. And interestingly, they didn't meet each other. So it was made it very difficult to understand how this majority of the population were getting infected. So one of the uh, other things we noted is that when you have cases with the same TB DNA and you try and link them epidemiologically, in South Africa you can't link them in the majority of cases. So only about 10 to 30% of cases are linked, meaning that we know this person gave disease to another person. So that raises the possibility of maybe there are many more people transmitting disease than we are recognizing as having disease. And that got me interested in looking at what is coming out of TB patients can we find organisms, etc.? TB treatment remains a challenge for both researchers and healthcare providers, according to Robin, because healthcare provision, even with the sophisticated technology available at their disposal, is very much reliant on a patient showing symptoms of TB and then seeking healthcare, which is the only way that TB treatment and monitoring can be facilitated. Previously in Cape Town, certainly between 1950 and 1975, we had an active case-finding program using um, mass radiography, uh, mobile x-ray. And when I look at those reports, every year the uh, medical health stated that he was flabbergasted that they kept on finding patients who had TB who didn't appear to be classically sick. So I don't think that what we're finding should be that much of a surprise. Historically, it was known to occur, but it hadn't been taken seriously. And interestingly, um, in Cape Town, those two and a half decades from the 1950s onwards was the only time in the last 100 years that TB rates decreased significantly. Apparently, normal living individuals like you and I who share compact living spaces share up to 25 litres of air a day, which makes the rampant spread of TB such a surreal reality of modern living. One of the consequences of us finding much larger numbers of organisms coming out of people than was ever previously imagined from this work that was done 60 years ago. The follow-on from that is, could we find evidence of mycobacteria being in the air in communal settings. So we have started looking at um, the air in settings such as churches, health facilities and schools using uh, some other technology which has been derived from the um, biodefense world whereby you can sample large volumes of air and then run DNA amplification techniques on there. When we do that, we can find circulating TB in some of the air of some of those um, congregate settings. So that allows you to move away from seeking individuals, but looking at groups of individuals to see if somebody amongst them is um, exhaling organisms. So that may allow us to move forward with fairly novel ways of screening for TB in the environment. It's a fact that for many years, TB has been known to be a disease that is easily spread through air and that improving environmental factors such as ventilation could help eliminate the spread of the infection. If you go to prisons, we estimate that um, prisoners are exchanging between 1,000 and 2,000 litres of air per day between each other. So you self-evidently can do something about that. You could ventilate the spaces, for instance. You could decrease the crowding and decrease the exposure time that people spend in those unacceptable conditions. And this probably explains how TB came under control in the Western world in that as you improve those social environmental conditions, not only do you decrease the efficiency of TB transmission, but you also decrease the potential group of people that can transmit. Here Robin talks about how the transmission of TB can be halted 
through controlling the following variables. There are techniques such as uh, ultraviolet air purifying whereby you can put ultraviolet lights in the ceilings of rooms which will effectively clean the air and act in the same way as fresh air ventilation. The air can be filtered by air conditioning, it can be cleaned with ultraviolet light, it can be replaced by good ventilation and individual risk can be decreased by decreasing crowding. But in a prison, people in Polesmoor Prison are locked up in unventilated spaces for 23 hours a day. Obviously, you could decrease the crowding, you could increase the ventilation and you could decrease the length of time they're spent in that environment. Ultraviolet lights and ventilation systems require a lot of maintenance. Natural ventilation is obviously much cheaper but uh, perhaps in Cape Town in the winter natural ventilation is avoided because of the uh, temperatures etc. Someone who is a low transmitter of the disease has less chances of spreading TB under such circumstances. There's a difference between what an individual breathes out and the extent to what they're exposed to environmentally. If we can operationalise this, at the moment it takes a microscopist a long period of time to look at each one of these small wells which contains an organism or doesn't contain an organism. So we are trying to computerise that so that we can use so-called machine learning to be able to scan these wells, each of which is very small. It's a nanoliter in size. And um, if we can operationalise that and make that um, more efficient and faster, then we'll be able to screen larger numbers of people, including patients who are suspected of TB and even people who are at a high risk of acquiring disease at some stage, and also seeing if we can, if this can be more sensitive than relying on symptoms or on sputum. So that's the way forward. Results from Robin's study have given alternative measurement of the risk of TB infection by determining the amount of rebreathed air and has given insights into the transmission patterns in HIV-infected and uninfected populations. With continuous research on TB, the heavy burden of the disease on healthcare facilities, especially in the public health care sector, will hopefully be lifted significantly. That was a story by our producer, Bridget LaPere, about aerobiology of tuberculosis. And this story really gets to me specifically because so much focus on tuberculosis and many diseases in general is about the treatment rightly so but with an airborne disease looking at transmissions and lowering those is quite tricky so it's great to see that people like professor robin wood are doing their best and really having some great breakthroughs in this area we will be getting back to more science about uh, tb a bit later in the show but after the break it's first our end science this is the science inside with elma Here on the show, we like to cover science about all kinds of things. And one of my favorite parts of the show is this, unscience, where we look at something really wacky, really strange from the world of science. Today, uh, we are with Bridget LePere. She has produced this unscience for us. Hey, how is it? <laughs> uh, okay, so my unscience is about a condition called Schadenfreude. Okay, um, anybody we need to thank for this? Yes, um, the music is from uh, Orange Sounds and some of the sound clips as well and some were found on YouTube and the story is from um, Science Daily. Okay, let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. All right, Elna, I need to ask you something a bit personal, but growing up as a child, what kind of cartoon characters did you like or prefer over others? Um, I liked the funny kind of cute ones the especially the animals the ones that were racing each other i didn't like the creepy ones oh so you're not a fan of villains 
No. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So psychologists at Amroy University who specialize in developmental studies have built a framework to systematically explain Schadenfreude by looking at, at ideas from evidence based on three decades of social, developmental, personality and clinical research. Okay. Now, the research suggests that that infants as young as eight months demonstrate a sophisticated sense of social justice. And in, in uh, some experiments, these children were shown, uh, had shown a preference for puppets that assisted a helpful puppet and the punishment of puppets that had exhibited antisocial behavior. It makes sense, right? That made me sad. The dinosaurs making me sad. Aww. Yeah, I mean, okay, that, that that does make sense because I think that I'd like to think that everybody has some sense of innate justice. I know a lot of it is learned, but I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, the research also pointed out that early roots of intergroup aggression showing that by nine months, infants preferred puppets that punish others who are different to them. Whoa. But being shut and fighter which means harm joy in German, is the experience of taking pleasure, joy or satisfaction in the misfortunes or failures of others. Look at him choke! Ah! Look at him suffer! Ah! Okay, I know what I said earlier about an innate sense of justice, but I was thinking more about, you know, peace. And and balance, and I understand that you need some social justice, but why the need to punish others for being different and draw joy from what is a little bit creepy? Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, well, as much as being well mannered and sociable is the mainstay of every child's upbringing, apparently being uh, social also comes with a dark side to it, where the cre- creation of cliques can also exclude others. Okay. That makes sense, but I think in general I associate that more with the teenage years where you're trying to differentiate yourself um, and, and you know, try to find your group. And you're saying this starts much earlier, actually. Was the teenage years, was that all just peer pressure? Well, it's just the f- another phase of human life that you had to go through. But absolutely correct. So psychologists say all humans have the dark side to them. But by the time we, we reach adulthood, many of us have perfected the art of hiding these tendencies. And surprisingly, this is more common than you would think, though it is very poorly understood. Okay, so they have 30 years worth of research saying this is what happens, but no conclusive reasoning behind it. But then how would one know if someone is just being mean as opposed to perhaps having a serious mental condition? Well, well, apparently Schadenfeider uh, comprises three separable but interrelated uh, subforms, namely aggression, rivalry and justice, hmm. which have distinct developmental origins and personality links. And interestingly, a PhD candidate in psychology and the first uh, author of the paper, Shen Sheng Wang, also singled out a commonality underlying these subforms, which underlines dehumanization as the cornerstone of this experience. We found a missing Brazilian soccer team working in your reactor core. That plane crashed on my property. <laughs> but uh, I, I get what you're saying, but maybe, maybe paint the picture for us. Give us a scenario. Well... Uh, Setups that usually inside uh, this uh, Schadenfeuer can also range from subtle forms such as assuming that someone from another ethnic group does not feel the same range or the full range of emotions um, as one is perceived to be of a better race or something as blatant as equating sex offenders to animals. So the co-authors of this study, Professors um, Philippi Rochot and Scott Lennonfield, who study infant and child development on personality and personality disorders, found that the propensity to experience Schadenfreude isn't entirely unique, but that it overlaps substantially with several other dark personality traits such as sadism, narcissism and psychopathy. What kind of monster is responsible for this horror? That's it, boys. Keep that gelatinous gold flowing. That makes that makes sense to me because 
even though we might feel some schadenfreude, a little bit, you know, if somebody trips or whatever, that, that's very different to deeply feeling that kind of joy. Um, and I can see why that would be quite dangerous and why it needs to be studied and understood. So what makes people feel this kind of emotion and continue even though they know actually what they're doing is not that great? Well, the ability to feel empathy for others enables people to pull away from schadenfreude, uh, while others temporarily lose empathy for others. It has been pointed out that certain personality disorders associated with these traits such as psychopathy, narcissism or sadism are either less likely or less motivated to put themselves in the shoes of others. So you are correct to say this um, This will. Um, this study gives uh, researchers a glance into this condition and how they can, you know, better yeah, the, the lives of human beings. Nice try, but I built up an immunity. <laughs> It's it's a funny thing. I'm I'm glad that researchers are looking at this, especially because sometimes this word Schadenfreude, I feel like um like people use it to sort of excuse when when they yeah. think things are funny that really aren't. So very interesting. Um our unsigned from Bridget LePere there. After the break we get into more T B specifically, how it functions in a world that is also battling with HIV. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. You are still on Science Inside with myself, Elna Schutz, and today on the show we're talking tuberculosis. And the story I want to tell you now is a little bit like a superhero story, or should I say supervillain? Once upon a time, in a far, far away country lived a villain called Superbug. <laughs> One day, <laughs> Superbug met his friend, Mr. V. <laughs> Look, clearly, I am horrible in this storytelling. <laughs> The narrator of our epic story is Lucy Mfumi. She's a PhD research fellow with the Botswana Harvard AIDS Institute Partnership and works with the Sub-Saharan African Network for TB HIV Research Excellence. We had a little bit of fun um, talking supervillains and making that example, but this is actually something incredibly serious. Much like in South Africa, Botswana also has a significant burden of TB. You won't find it on the World Health Organization's top 30 countries with TB like South Africa, but both countries are on the list of nations that struggle specifically with TB and HIV together. And those two are the two supervillains of our story. Both are a problem in themselves, but put them together and you have more than the sum of their parts to worry about. Almost 60% of the people in Botswana who come to a clinic with TB, presenting TB, also have HIV. And that makes it a very important scientific link to look at. Here's Lucy explaining it. TB and HIV are like two sides of the same coin. We always call them that they are a synergistic condition because all of us have been exposed to TB if we stay in Africa. But for some reason, our immune system is able to keep that TB bacilli at bay. But when HIV comes into the mix, it sort of wakens that giant that was lying in the body. Because what HIV does so remarkably well is to destroy the CD4 cells. And the CD4 T cells are actually the cells that are important in maintaining the immunity to TB. So when HIV destroys those cells, then the bacilli that was lying dormant suddenly can start replicating in the body. Starts, that means just making copies of itself, and the person starts getting the symptoms of TB disease. 
What TB also does is it also helps HIV make copies of itself. So they are sort of helping each other along the way, and this is all happening in one patient. So whenever TB patients present, what WHO now actually recommends is all TB patients should be tested for HIV, and all HIV patients should be tested for TB because we know there is this interplay that occurs. So the two supervillains, TB and HIV, team up in the body against the white blood cells, helping each other grow. So Lucy is trying to understand why HIV-affected people are at risk, including working on better treatments and methods of diagnosis. In her work, there's been quite a worrying find. They've been looking, these researchers have been looking at Botswana's national database of people on antiretroviral treatments, or ARTs. What we find interesting is even in the patients who have been on antiretroviral therapy, and we, we assume that what antiretroviral therapy does, not only does it lower the copies of the virus so that the, person, the patient can at least get well and their immune system recovers, what we assume is as the immune system recovers, we should also get a recovery of immune responses to bacilli such as TB, in addition to other pathogens that normally cause disease in HIV-infected patients. But we find patients who've been on antiretroviral therapy for a year, two years, five years, they still succumb to TB disease. And so what we're trying to understand is what are the reasons that even when patients have been on antiretroviral therapy, their CD4 counts are improving, the viral load is decreasing because antiretroviral therapy suppresses the virus, we still have patients who are developing TB. And one of, one of the, the reasons we, we, we are aware of is, is, is that if patients who are HIV infected are still even though they are on ART, for some reason, the immune responses that are specific to, to TB are not as well developed, even in the face of antiretroviral therapy. So what we're trying to understand is, and to tease out is what are those specific immune responses that are needed to help patients who are on antiretroviral therapy to sort of remain resistant to developing TB. While ARTs do help the immune system with the fight against other diseases, this isn't enough all across the board. And the other curious thing is that in the first three months of being on antiretrovirals, your likelihood of developing TB is actually much higher. Here are some reasons why this may be the case. It's either we are not screening patients as well during the time before we initiate them on treatment, or it could be that patients do not have the typical symptoms of TB and antiretroviral therapy as it helps your immune system to sort of start fighting off all these pathogens. It, it creates this flare of disease as, as like it's almost a pressure valve. Your immune system is suddenly switched on and is discovering all those bacteria that we're hiding and suddenly the patients uh, develop, present to the clinic with TB symptoms within just six months or so or even just under a year of antiretroviral therapies. There's another problem here. To diagnose and monitor TB, you generally use sputum, coughed up by patients. But given that this villain doesn't operate alone, this isn't so straightforward. HIV-infected patients sometimes can't even cough up that sputum. So if, we're, if they're able to cough up and we diagnose TB, when they're on treatment, some of them are no longer able to cough up that sputum. And that's the only test we can use to check if they're doing well. So when they finish treatment, like, oh, okay, you finished treatment, but we actually don't have a sputum sample that they can cough up and we can look and say, yes, you know, you are clean, there is nothing in the sputum. So we're trying to see, can we look in the blood instead? Maybe there are certain changes in the blood that can tell us that the immune system has been able to clear this bacteria out of the system. So Lucy is working on testing blood for H- uh, sorry for TB, which has been done before, but not on people with HIV 
that are also on antiretrovirals. When I spoke to Lucy, she was actually waiting on her blood samples from Botswana to be let into the country for her work uh, using a very specific instrument here. But since some parts of the Department of Health were striking at the time, she was still waiting for that blood to come in. While Lucy had to come down to Cape Town to test the blood, there is currently hope within research that the same instruments we currently use for CD4 counts in HIV patients could be used and expanded to testing the blood for TB, which of course would be excellent to make things so much easier. These advances are especially important in pediatric TB because children often don't cough up the sputum you would need. So it's difficult to diagnose. And you know what? I... I really appreciate Lucy's work so specifically, not just because it shows how our South African TB problem fits in with some of our neighboring countries, but that this disease does not stand alone and it should not be treated as such. And this, as other stories on the show today, give me hope because there are scientists working on um, on not just curing the disease, which which um, is already possible, TB is curable, as I'm sure you know, but really reducing and making this less of a burden on South Africans and hopefully with it, the world. You're still on the science inside. Today on the show, the science inside of tuberculosis. It's something that is so serious in South Africa and can seem so hopeless given the fact that even though there is treatment and a cure, it is airborne. So uh, transmissions aren't as easy to to keep low as perhaps with behavior-based transmissions. So... It's very tricky and it's been so inspiring on the show today to speak to some researchers like Robin Wood and Lucy Mfumi who are working very hard on understanding, monitoring, diagnosing and treating this disease and the diseases related to it better. A big thank you goes to them. Today our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget LePere and take by Kutlana Sahame. The podcast of the show, if you missed anything and you'd like to share it with a friend, say hey, oh my gosh, did you hear about how TB and HIV are actually closely linked in South Africa? You can do that quite easily. Look for The Science Inside on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or our website vits.journalism.coza forward slash science we're on social media facebook and twitter as at vow fm my name is elna schutz i spent the last hour with you here and the science inside is produced by the vitz radio academy funded in part by the south african department of science and technology i will be with you again next week the science inside monday from 6 to 7 p.m on vow fm 88.1 The Science Inside Podcast.